um, the, the uh, sessions will be recorded and we'll get them on the uh, our website. So if you have to miss a session or like to hear a session over again, you can go to our website and be able to uh, listen to it. Also, the notes, we're going to try to put the notes up there as well. So need a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible, remember, bring one next week. Okay. Uh, but we'll be looking at the scriptures. Part of this is to really help us to pick up the scriptures, get into the scriptures, look at the scriptures, and realize, hey, we can do this. You know, this is not beyond us. This is something that God made available to all of us. So let's turn to John chapter 2 in the gospel. We don't. No. No, we don't have any Bibles here. Okay, John chapter 2. This is the wedding at Cana, and as you're turning there, uh, weddings in the day of Jesus were really big events, special events. They were really uh, events by, by which the community gathered around, and the reason for that is because the whole idea of becoming married was becoming a, a full person, a full adult in society. And the whole idea of a marriage was really to be able to raise a family to make the community that you're part of stronger economically, militarily, and to bless the community. So the whole idea was to have a large family. The whole idea in Jesus' time was to have a, a wedding gathering that would celebrate and look forward to that because the whole community would be blessed by it, not just the individuals. So weddings were big things in the time of, of Jesus, the ancient world, and here we see Jesus being part of a wedding, being invited to a wedding with his, his disciples. So let's take a look, John chapter 2. We're going to read through the scripture, and then I'll go back and we'll look at uh, the verses individually. So verse 1, on the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone water jars, or six stone jars, were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, take it to the steward of the feast. So they, they took it. And when the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Okay, so let's take a look at this again. Um, the significance, John's gospel is really a unique kind of gospel. This uh, series is called Encountering the Lord, and it, it's built on the premise that each of us can come into a personal encounter with Jesus that can really have significance for our life, just like the people in the scriptures did. In, in the weeks ensuing, beginning tonight, we'll look at how people encountered the Lord and their lives were significantly altered and changed because of that. Encountering the Lord, actually the phrase that uh, has been used by several of the popes in the past several years, John Paul II said that the basis and foundation of the Catholic life is an encounter with Jesus Christ. Pope Francis, in his uh, uh, letter that he wrote called uh, The Joy of the Gospel, 
says, he exhorted the Catholic people, said, let the Lord encounter you. Or how he said, have an encounter with the Lord, or else let the Lord encounter you, he said. So the language of encounter is the language of meeting the Lord in a way that significantly alters our life. And here's the wedding at Cana. And here is Jesus going to encounter people's lives and significantly alter their life. Just take a look. Verse 1. Again, and um, I'm going to hopefully share as we move along through this series, just give some insights of how to read the scriptures, how to study the scriptures. So on the third day, and if you have a pen or a pencil, feel free just to underline that third day in your work in the scriptures because it's significant. On the third day, there was a marriage. Now, third day actually goes back to, in the Old Testament, to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was a significant gathering point. And we won't look at it tonight, but you could, if you have time, go back to Exodus chapter 19 through chapter 24. And there you'll get the whole Sinai experience. Sinai was a pivotal moment in Egypt's or Israel's history. What happened at Sinai was the Lord gave the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He gave the law. He gave them how to live in his presence. He gave them his commitment to them. And... He was calling forth a commitment from them to himself. Sinai was significant. Sinai was a moment of the Lord establishing a covenant with his people. He just brought them out of Egypt. And he showed great, great power and love for them in doing so. But now he was taking it one step further and went to establish a permanent relationship with his people. He was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. He was going to look out for them, protect them, provide for them, heal them, forgive them. And on their part, they were going to worship him alone and obey him alone. So the third day means that the Lord told Moses, prepare the people for three days for an encounter with me at Sinai, at Mount Sinai. If you ever read that in Exodus, it's a, it's a, it's a grand scene of lightning bolts and thunder and fire and all that it's great for you know great move makes great movie stuff okay but but it's it's the presence and the fire of god burning in the hearts of people and establishing a covenant with them what john's going to show us is that just as the lord began something new in israel at sinai he's beginning something new at this wedding feast through jesus just like he wants to begin something new in our life. So on the third day, referring to Sinai, prepare your hearts for an encounter. There was a marriage at Cana in Galilee. Marriage, which, marriage is a great theme throughout all of Scripture. It's uh, not only a sacrament for us as Catholics, but marriage is God himself said, I am your husband, and he saw his people as his bride. God was being married to his bride. It's a language of friendship. It's a language of covenant. It's a language of permanency of relationship. It's a language of protection and caring and providing, fidelity and obedience and trust. It's all that language. And the scriptures use it in abundance to describe our relationship to God. Jesus at one point in the gospel said that he was like a bridegroom, meaning his people were the bride. Uh, but here we see a marriage. The Lord chooses a marriage to begin something new in the face of the earth. You know, a, a husband and wife coming together, a man and woman coming together as husband and wife. It's something unique on the face of the earth. There isn't like any other couple like that on the face of the earth. You know, two distinct individuals being now drawn together as one in body and soul is a unique work of God. That's what we mean by sacrament. 
God blesses, God encourages, God empowers, God, God fills with the Spirit, you know, that you. Well, here it is at a wedding that Jesus chooses for the first time to reveal himself to his people. So let's take a look at what he does. There's a marriage at Canaan in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Notice John doesn't say Mary. He says mother of Jesus. Again, that'd be something you might like to underline. Mother of Jesus. Appears twice in the Gospel of John. Appears here. Also appears again at the foot of the cross, where we say, not Mary, but John says the mother of Jesus. We'll come back to that in just a minute, because that's really significant in who she is for us. It says Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. I think wherever Jesus went, his disciples came. I think people got that message by now. Okay, So it's like, can you imagine his band of 12 going with him wherever he went? So he goes into Capernaum where he made his home base. And there happens, he's invited for dinner. Guess what? There's 12 other guests coming along too. <laughs> so, you know, but they were used to that in those days because hospitality was a big thing and they wouldn't turn anybody away. They took, took anybody that came in, you know, so... So it's that kind of spirit of saying, you know, where Jesus went, so did his disciples. So when the wine failed, verse 3, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Wine failed, meaning that on one level, it was a great embarrassment to the couple that they didn't have the resources available to host their guests. And I have to remember, when they had a wedding, you know, they book the hall for like a week. <laughs> so you're talking about uh, coming from distance and staying a long time. You better make sure you had the resources to care for all the people in the community and your extended relatives and friends because they were coming to stay for a week. It was a big thing. They would hire event planners <laughs> to plan for these things. And you know, the fee was like for the whole week. And we're going to see some of those event planners in just a minute. You know, they were responsible for making sure that everything was provided for for the guests because a lack of anything was a black mark against the whole community. That's how big hospitality was for them. Do something that in any way causes shame to your guest, it's a black mark to the whole community. So not having wine was a really big deal, really big deal. But also on another level it shows human resources are limited here. They ran out. And we're going to see something that God's resources are unlimited. And we might have had that tonight in our own life. We may be finding ourselves having a limitation of resources. You know, we might find ourselves feeling lack in our life, whatever that looks like for us. And having a lack of resources is not a shameful thing to us. It's not even a bad thing. It's a humbleness of our heart recognizing that my resources are limited, that God's resources are infinite. We're going to see that in just a minute. So what happens is uh, they have no wine. The mother of Jesus approaches him, and she's petitioning. She's requesting on behalf of friends here to, to do something about this. And he says, a woman, what have you to do with me? Now, that language of woman... In, in Jesus' day was an okay language to use to describe women in society. But it wasn't an okay language to describe your mother. <laughs> okay. so, so what's the big deal? How come this son is calling his mother a woman like this? Well, who is she? She's his mother. 
the mother of Jesus, right? But Jesus calls her that woman, what have you do with me? He's distancing himself in relationship to her. It's a language of phrase. It's typical of the Semitic time. He distances himself from her for the purpose of establishing a new kind of relationship with her. She's going to move from mother of the Lord to disciple of her son. Big, big, big significance there in understanding. And I think what we see with Mary, and again, the mother of the Lord here, they don't call her Mary, is that she's taking on a new relationship to her son now. I, you know, I'm sure in some respect as mothers here, natural, natural sense, a natural way, you take on a new relationship with perhaps your son as they grow older. You have sons, and it's not the same any longer. That's what was happening with Jesus and Mary. He was calling her into a new relationship with him as a disciple. Now, the beautiful thing about that is John Paul II reflected on that at one time and said that Mary's role as a disciple of Jesus was probably the significant because she was the first disciple of Jesus. We're going to see who she embodies. She embodies all of Israel. She reflects all of Israel, the obedient, faithful people of Israel. Let's go back to Sinai for a moment. Three days they prepared. On the third day, they had their encounter with the Lord. And the Lord gave the covenant and gave the, the Torah, the, the foundation of Israel's life to those people. And what did the people say? They said, whatever the Lord says and does, we will obey. We will obey. It was an act of complete trust and obedience in the Lord. Here now at the way of Cana, Mary, mother of Jesus, symbolizes and embodies all of Israel. And what is she going to say? Let's look at it here. He said, his mother, this is verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She embodies all of Israel. She's the disciple who's obedient and trustful up to the Lord. She's the disciple that says all of Israel will do what you say. All of Israel will obey you. All of Israel will follow what you say. Now that's that's the heart of a disciple. I don't know if you've been following much lately. Uh, Pope Francis, of course, and before that, uh, Pope Benedict, John Paul II, all been saying things like, you know, we're called by our baptism to be disciples of Jesus. And a word that's been used just recently, uh, in the last couple of years, has been intentional disciples. Intentional means I choose. It's not something that I just kind of float along because I'm a Catholic. It's something I choose to do. I choose to become a disciple of the Lord. Now, my background, baptism, sacraments, all those things can prepare me for that. But at some point, as Catholics, we need to choose. We need to decide to say that I want to become a follower of Jesus. I want to have my life shaped by his word and his truth. Mary kind of embodies that disciple who says, I want to be faithful to the Lord. I want to choose to be a follower of my son. Okay, so notice back in verse 4, he says to her, my hour is not yet come. So what's the hour? The hour refers in John's gospel always to Jesus' death, his passion, his death, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had on his mind here at the wedding at Cana his death. He was keenly aware that his Death was something significant, and we'll just take a look at that in a few minutes as we look further into this, this passage here. Jesus had on, in his mind the death 
his own death and its significance of working out the Father's love and the Father's plan. Okay, another thing, let's go back up, if you would, to verse 2 again. It says Jesus was invited to the marriage. Marriage in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke about God's relationship to his people as a covenant relationship. Marriage meant covenant, meant God binding his heart to his people. It also meant that just like a marriage was a new thing on the face of the earth, God was going to do a new thing in Israel. And that new thing would come through Jesus. So that's why Jesus chooses a marriage piece to reveal himself first to his disciples. Okay, so let's continue on. So what happens here? Verse 5, his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now six stone water jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. The belief, again, of course, by the Jewish people is the whole idea of cleansing, purifying. Again, it's not insignificant here because what John is saying is that we need to be purified and cleansed to come into God's presence. How's that going to happen? Well, he's going to tell us in just a minute. And now he says, uh, verse 8, he says to them, draw some water out, take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. And when the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, let me just stop there for just a minute. 20, 30 gallons of water, you're talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water, a lot of water. And uh, turns into an abundance of wine. In the scriptures, wine symbolizes the Holy Spirit. So, if you have a pencil or pen, just underline that phrase there, water became wine. Because wine is the Holy Spirit and the outpouring of God's Spirit in abundance. Now, this was a Old Testament longing of God's people. We're going to take a look at that in the second half tonight, just a few minutes about the role of the Holy Spirit in our life. But, but basically, the prophets looked for the day when the Holy Spirit would be given in great abundance on the face of the earth. What did that mean for them? It meant that each of them could have a personal encounter and friendship with Jesus. It wasn't just relegated to just a few special people. Each person could have a personal encounter and friendship with the Lord and know the Lord in a personal way. That's what the work of the Holy Spirit is. So John is saying the Lord wants has to pour out his spirit in abundance upon us. Okay, so now the second part of that, it says, The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, verse 10, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Well, think about that for a moment. If your guests are just arriving, the wedding's begun, you know, it's the early part of the week, you know, you serve good wine. By the time they've been drinking all week, it probably doesn't matter how much wine or what kind of wine <laughs> by the end of the week, right? So that's why the poor wine is served at that point. So, so there was some. So the steward of this whole feast here, this whole wedding, he's responsible for this whole. He's the event planner here for the whole wedding. You know, he's aware of the fact that the best wine, the choice wine, has been served later on in the feast, and. He's like amazed at that. That would happen. Where'd you come up with the best wine? Again, human resources are limited, but God's resources are unlimited. Reminds me of the passage from Isaiah. It says, "My thoughts are not your thoughts," says the Lord. "My ways are not your ways." Sometimes, you know, things happen in our life. And we think, "Well, like I don't know where God is involved in all 
it's important to remember that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But if we just keep seeking him, we'll find out exactly what he's doing and what he has in mind for that situation in our life that we don't really know a whole lot about right now. Because even though his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our, thought, our ways, he wants to reveal his thoughts and his ways to us. So we learn that. And we see the abundance of his provision for us in a circumstance that we are terribly lacking in that circumstance. Okay, so verse 11 says this is the first of his signs. And the word signs means mighty works or wonders. Um, it refers to uh, not just something that you physically see, like in this case, the water turned into wine. But it's the water turned into wine that reveals Lord, what he's like. I'll give you an example about that. Um, if uh, you and I are at a cocktail party, you know, and we're talking, and um, I see Joe, you know, going over to, to Dan and shaking his hands and embracing him and hugging him, and I say, Look at that. Look at what Joe and Dan are doing. And you say, What's the big deal? You know, and I say, Well, Joe and Dan have been enemies for 12 years. So that act of Joe and Dan just kind of like uh, embracing one another in a moment of reconciliation reveals something than just two people embracing. It reveals the fact that there's been a healing after a 12-year conflict. That's what a sign is. It's God does something that gets our attention, but then he reveals himself. This is what I'm up to. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm like. So what do we see what he's like? We see, like, first of all, he has an abundance of provision for our need. We see, that, um, we see that he is able to handle circumstances in our life that we can't handle ourselves. You know? And we see that he wants to reveal his ways to us. He wants to communicate to us, and he invites us into that friendship. These are the things he wants to do for us, that the sign of the water turned into wine speaking to us about. And then what happened here? It says, verse 11, this is the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and the disciples believed in him. Again, underlining that phrase, believed in him. Believed in John's gospel means a whole lot more than just simply um, being able to state propositional statements of faith, like I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. John's understanding of belief means a personal commitment to the person that you're believing in. In this case, it's Jesus. It's a personal investment of our life in him. It's a personal entrusting of ourselves to him. It's a personal uh, saying to him, of, I, want, I, I want to commit myself to you as a person, and I want my life to be shaped by you. That's what belief means in John's gospel. Okay, so that's the way in Cana. We want to apply that now. So let's go to your outline, if you would. And we're going to be looking at uh, the part that says life encounters Jesus, new beginnings. We're going to drop on down to number two. The first part of that just summarizes the wedding at Cana. What we want to do is, I mentioned that the new wine is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're going to take a look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures, a little bit in church history, and today with the Holy Spirit stone. So let's take a look at number two, biblical and apostolic background to the action of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit shows up, but not a whole lot, but he does show up. For example, there was darkness over the deep, and the Spirit, God's Spirit hovered over the water. In creation, it was the Spirit that hovered over the chaos and the water and brought something forth in that. 
Numbers 11, verse 29, would that all the people of the Lord were prophets, says Moses, would that the Lord bestow his spirit on all of them. What, hap- what was happening there was that basically that only a few people got the Holy Spirit. And what, what happened was Moses saying, I wish that all God's people would have the Holy Spirit. Well, that would occur at Pentecost. That would occur. Number three, the Lord looks into the heart, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. When David was anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel, the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. What we see in the Old Testament, though, is that the Holy Spirit only came on certain people. That was it. Usually they were prophets, kings. You know, usually they were people that uh, had a special, particular ministry. And that was it. Everybody else had to step back and be on the sidelines. I think I shared with you before, uh, the scene I loved from the Old Testament was that at, at Sinai, at the very top of the mountain, there's Moses speaking face-to-face with God. At the bottom of the mountain, the 70 elders of Israel, 20 miles down the road are the people of Israel. And they're saying, let Moses take care of that. <laughs> We're okay where we are. Let Moses speak to God face-to-face, heart-to-heart. We'll stay back here, and he can tell us what he, what, what he heard. Okay, that's the Old Testament, the Old Covenant come to the New Testament, things are beginning to change somewhat. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. This was Mary. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary and brought forth the conception of Jesus. It's by the Holy Spirit she has conceived this child, says the angel. Matthew 1, verse 20. And then it's spoken about in Jesus that he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. In the weeks ahead, we'll look at that phrase a little bit more closely, but it's a, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus is going to lavishly pour out his Spirit upon anyone who turns to him in faith. And then Jesus himself, number three, preacher, healer, in the power of the Spirit, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit to go about doing good for people. So, again, what we're seeing here is still the Holy Spirit just settling on, on just a few people. Mary, Jesus, and we're going to see in a moment, the disciples, and that's about it. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit to his followers. But then in the Acts of the Apostles, things change. Now the Holy Spirit starts to fall upon everybody who calls upon the name of Jesus. Everyone who's baptized receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Church through the ages, if you turn over your outline here, the Holy Spirit was always present in the church of the ages, working with individuals, and we'll see in a moment, working with large groups of people. St. Anthony of Egypt was uh, known for his ability to read into the hearts of people. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. St. Benedict had, was able to, besides founding the communities, he was able to, um, he was able to work miracles in the name of Jesus. St. Dominic, the grace of preaching was so characteristic that people were astounded by the Holy Spirit working through him. St. Francis, of course, most of us know his love for poverty and the poor, but many of us perhaps aren't aware of the fact that through the life of Francis, God healed the sick and freed men and women from evil. That was also part of the work of the Holy Spirit in him. St. Catherine of Siena, a beautiful embodiment of gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, miracles and prophecy and uh, understanding of people's hearts that in a way that you couldn't get through natural ways and contemplative gifts of prayer. St. Teresa of Avila, a wonderful gift of prayer that characterized her life, but she was the first to say, this is a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart to bring me to new levels of friendship with the Lord. John of the Cross reformed the religious orders of his day with great cost of suffering to him. And he would say at the end of his life, someone, uh, he was dying on his, his deathbed, and one of his brothers came up to him and said, you know, 
you know, John, look at all the great things you did for God. And John said, I didn't do anything. It was by the Holy Spirit that it was accomplished in me and through me. St. Ignatius Loyola was beautifully known for the gift of discernment. And then the great cathedrals of York. I'm going to read to you from a book called The Sounds of Wonder. Uh, it was written by Deacon Eddie Ainsley. The, the building of the great cathedrals of York, like Chartres in, in France, 1145, uh, were resulted in religious revivals. I mean, during the day, they would build the cathedrals. It took a lot of, of, of people, power to do that. In the evening, they would have healing services. Let me just read to you what he says here. God looked down upon his people with mercy because they had become estranged from God and become sick with sin. The renewal came from the loving Lord looking from heaven, and people drew close to him. So in doing so, God showed his love for the people of Sharta as a new manner of seeking him. So during the day, they would enlist volunteers to build the great cathedrals. At night, the priests would be available to hear confessions of people. They would have healing services in which people would be healed. This is what uh, reported by Abbot Hammond, who was an eyewitness to all this. He said this, Once they were carrying up stone and lime and wood to, and other building material, the load was so heavy that it took a thousand people required to pull the wagon. When they stopped to rest, nothing was heard but confession of sins and prayer to God. The priest encouraged the group to be of one mind, hatreds ceased, grudges disappeared, and men's hate, uh, hearts were united. Then he went on to say this, the sick were set apart in groups. The people sang hymns and psalms, and they implored the Lord to heal the sick. And when the sick were not healed, the crowd become more exuberant in his prayer. And then, Abbot Haddon says, amazing thing happened. Soon the sick leaped forth, healed from wagon to wagon. The cripple threw away the crutches, and the, the, uh, those that were uh, unable to walk leaped, hurrying to give thanks at the altar. Blind men see and move about with ease. So these building of the cathedrals in Europe wasn't just an architectural work or an engineering work. It was a work of religious revival amongst the people. And the cathedrals became known as spiritual centers of renewal amongst God's people. That's a work of the Holy Spirit through the ages. Okay, let's take a look at today, the work of the Holy Spirit. Since 1967, the close of the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church has experienced a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There's been the reappearance of the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. Gifts that we thought were just in certain people, like the saints, now have become available to many of God's people. Things like prophecy and healing and miracles and things have become more available to God's people today. Pope uh, Paul VI said this, The Church is always in need of her perpetual Pentecost. The church always has need of Pentecost, he said. John Paul II said at the Pentecost Vigil in 1998, he said the church consists of the institutional, like the sacraments and the hierarchy and canon law. He also said the church consists of the charismatic dimension, the gifts of the spirit. Both are needed, he says, for the church to operate effectively. He says, by God's providence, we are rediscovering the charismatic dimension of the church in our day. Pope Benedict said uh, in 2008 at a Pentecost vigil that he says, I wish the whole church to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and rediscover the graces of the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. 
Now, I left it out here, but Pope Francis met with uh, some 52,000 Catholics. Uh, it was a, a renewal of the spirit gathering in Rome in June of 2014. He says, he says, I wish you all to take the grace of the baptism of the spirit to the whole church, he says. Again, we'll explore that term later on. Um, but the popes have been saying, since Pope Paul VI, have been saying that the church is in need of a new Pentecost. And they've been recognizing how the Lord's been working and stirring Pentecost in the hearts of the Catholic people over the last 50 years, since the, since the close of the Second Vatican Council. So what's number four? What's the result of all this? As Jesus made wine out of water, a new work, he wants to bring us into a changed relationship with himself through the Holy Spirit. Just take a look at what that looks like, what can look like for us. The Holy Spirit wants to lead us into encounters with the risen Lord that cultivates a personal friendship or relationship with him. In other words, the Holy Spirit's main goal is to help uh, create in us a friendship with Jesus. Secondly, a new hunger for the scriptures. A, d- a desire to learn it, live by it, and have it shape our life. Number Letter C, a new taste and desire for prayer. Sometimes prayer can be difficult for us. The Holy Spirit, when he's awakened in our life, makes prayer a delight. Something that we want to do. Doesn't mean there aren't challenges to it. Just something, something inside of us says, I really want to do this. I really see the need for this, and I'm going to make the time for it. And the Holy Spirit causes that desire within us. Number letter D, a deeper appreciation of the sacraments as powers to change life, change our life. In other words, the sacraments, we, as Catholics, we've grown up with the sacraments, we're familiar with the sacraments. But what the Holy Spirit wants to do is give us a new appreciation, a new awareness of God's presence and power to change our life through the sacraments. If you would, the sacraments can become a place of encounter with the Lord. So we go to receive the sacrament of reconciliation, for example. It isn't just having my sins forgiven. It's I'm going to meet the Lord there where I can experience his mercy, free my heart in certain areas of my life where I've been struggling with. Or coming to the Eucharist, I can expect not just receiving the body and blood of Jesus, but expecting to encounter the Lord in a new way where there's maybe healing in my life, physical healing perhaps, or spiritual healing or healing of a relationship. In other words, the sacraments become places of encounter with the Lord. Now, letter E, a new inner strength to overcome patterns of sin. Holy Spirit wants to give us an ability inside of us that we don't generate, he generates within us, to overcome patterns of sin. Things that we're struggling with, he wants to give us a new presence and power to overcome that. And lastly, an openness to the charisms or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we're baptized and confirmed, we're given gifts to the Spirit. A lot of Catholics go through their whole life not even knowing what those gifts are. So uh, one of the roles of, I think, pastor leadership and what you'll be seeing coming forth for me is to have ways and means to help people like yourselves discover your gifts and utilize them on behalf of the Lord and his people. Um, but the Holy Spirit wants to give those gifts. And in a parish community, he's given everything we need to be able to do effectively the work he's called us to it's just simply a matter of discovering that and utilizing that and releasing that amongst the Lord's people. And that's one of the, at the top of the Holy Spirit's list is to give charism, to give gifts to his people. Okay, 
So we're gonna take a look at your questions here. And uh, remember, you gotta appoint somebody in your group to be your facilitator who can report back. But let's take a look at the questions. I'll just give you a brief thinking behind the number one. From the text of scripture, John chapter two, what is God's goal in pouring out in abundance the gift of the spirit? Remember the abundance of new wine? That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what do you think God's up to with that? What do you think he wants to accomplish through that? Number two is how is the mother of Jesus postured towards Jesus and the service to be a model for us? So what, how is she a model in the way she responded to her son? Number three is how would you describe the action of the Holy Spirit called charismatic? That word charismatic, by the way, just simply means action of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures in church history. In other words, if you had to come up with one phrase or a word to describe the Holy Spirit in scripture and church history, how would you define that? How would you describe that? Okay, from the survey, number four, the survey of the quotes of the Holy Fathers I just mentioned, how would you describe their vision of what the Lord is doing amongst God's people today? So take those popes and what I just spoke about, how would you say, what's their insight as to what the Holy Spirit is saying? And lastly, in light of today's session, what one thing can you do to become more open to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. What's the one thing you think you can do that will help you to become um, more available to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you? Um, again, it may be more of a personal thing, but something maybe to take home with you during the week and reflect upon. How can I become more open to the Holy Spirit? Okay, we'll have about 20, um, have about a quarter of now. We'll take about 20 minutes to talk about this. Don't have to worry about going through all of them. Start with number one and get as far as you can with that. Okay. So we'll begin that now.